0: This podcast is dedicated to promoting the organization, its members, and events, as well as writers throughout Appalachia and beyond. And now, broadcasting from Atop a Hill in Mercer County, here is your host, El Presidente Emeritus. Thank you, Gertrude, and hola, citizens. Welcome to episode 14 of the West Virginia Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Fritchus, a.k.a. Emeritus. A little while back, we put out the invitation here for members of West Virginia Writers to send in any recordings they had of live readings they'd done from their work. This could be either at a book signing or merely into a tape recorder in their kitchen. Now, the goal of this was to be able to use such recordings as part of the podcast in order to help showcase the work of our members and Appalachian writing in general. Not long after this, I learned that one of our members, Joey Medea, was going to be doing a live reading at a book signing promoting his recently released novel, Jester Knight. So I contacted Joey and asked if he could record it, and he thankfully agreed. Joey Medea himself is a recent addition to both the ranks of West Virginia writers and the residents of our state. He moved here with his wife and three kids not long ago, and they now live on a three-acre patch of rural land in the Fairmont-Clarksburg area. In addition to being a professional copy editor and proofreader, is also a poet, dramatist, actor, teacher, playwright, and he's worked in the field of dramatic arts and creative writing for nearly the past 20 years. His plays have been produced in 14 states. Currently, he's the resident playwright and artistic director of the new Mystics Theater Company and resident playwright for Youth Stages LLC, a New Jersey-based performing arts and education organization. In 2007, his four-book series on using improvisation and theater to improve reading and writing in the classroom, called The Stage Learning Series, was published by a company publishing in Minneapolis. This year, his fantasy novel Jester Knight, Book One of the Ember Dragon Tales, saw publication through New Mystics Enterprises. The book is the first in a planned six-book series. According to Joy, the books began as a series of poems and draw heavily on ancient and medieval history and the study of different religions and spiritual systems to create a three-dimensional world of different races and edgy politics. The reading we're about to play for you was recorded at Victoria and Banks Gallery in Fairmont.
1: Okay, so thank you all for coming, first of all, and it's a pleasure to be here um, on a Friday night. And thank you to Vicki. Thank you. And Victorian Banks for hosting this reading. Thank you. And this is the book that I'm going to be reading from tonight. It's called Jester Night. And this is book one of the Amber Dragon Tales of a planned six books. If the mm-hmm. interest is there and the love is there. Mm-hmm. But um, but I love the scope of it. And it's a, it's a fantasy adventure book. And I think pretty self-explanatory. I'm going to start at the very top of chapter one, which I haven't done in any reading so far. Um, but rather than talk, I will just read. So part one... Chapter 1 Jester was not laughing. He was a man who prided himself on his ability to see the humor in all things. Indeed, it was his vocation, his calling, the very soul of his profession. Yet for the life of him, try though he might, he could not find the slightest reason to smile. The pulsing mix of conversation and argument going on at the six banquet tables around him was enough to try even his considerable patience. Glancing across the room at the king, he wondered how Dillwyn was managing to keep from throwing every last guess out into the deepening night. The man is a diplomat, he thought, and that is what is called for here. <coughs> now come, how, come now, your highness, said Fogreth, the largest and most powerful of the five barons of Glitteri, washing down a mouthful of bread with a sloshing goblet of rich red wine. Surely you'll admit that we are entitled to a great deal more than the elves have given us in the past. Now is the time to stop our talking and act. Entitled is a strong word, Filbert, Dillwyn replied, placing his own goblet gently on the table in an effort to distance himself from the poorly mannered baron who had become his chief rival. The elves are a noble and an ancient race, honest nearly to a fault, and not given to acts of greed. Our forebears spent too many years at war with them for us to risk our treaties by asking for too much. Sire, this was Baron Bellum of the West. As is often the case, I do not believe my colleague's empty stomach has caused his mouth to stretch a bit too wide. Choosing not to acknowledge Filger's stuffed mouth run of agreement, Bellum added, perhaps after the main course has arrived and been consumed... We might all be of a clearer mind to discuss these important issues. All matters of this undue delay in our dinner table aside, he makes a fair enough point, a third voice interjected. You have something to add, Baron Kolar, Dilwyn asked, other than a complaint about my hospitality? Careful, sire, Elda Jester thought. You're supposed to be the reasoned one. Well, I do indeed, he answered, standing. At no time in our meetings have you shown any inclination for its changing our position at the bargaining table. The elves will be arriving in a few days, and we're no closer to a new set of contracts than we were a week ago. The eastern forests under my care have produced a grade of timber to rival that of the southern forests of the elves themselves. Now surely you don't expect me to take the same low price for our superior millwork that I have in the past? Then turning to Elv when he could see no change in the expression of the king, he added, perhaps your esteemed advisor could share his thoughts on the subject. You have been unusually quiet the past two days, El Jesser. What is it that you are thinking? If only I were allowed to say, El thought, managing to suppress a grin, it would certainly take your minds off the meal. Uh, yes indeed, Elv, Dilwyn said to his surprise. What are your thoughts about what the barons have said? Well, it seems to me that this past week has shown that the rivalries and disagreements between the baronies can be put aside for the greater good of Glynnarod, and that is encouraging to see. Smiling as he looked in each man's eyes, he tried to read their thoughts. I have chosen to sit quietly and listen to your concerns and suggestions both here in the festival hall and in the council room, and have considered each with a great deal of attention. And, Kohler asked, not one to be intimidated or to rush his council, Elk waited a moment before answering, despite the look of annoyance on Kohler's face. Although I agree that the baronies, at your capable direction, are prospering, and your output and quality are unsurpassed in the history of our kingdom, I do not think it should necessarily follow that this prosperity be used to take advantage of such important allies as the elves. Well stated, King Gildwyn said, raising his glass to indicate a toad. To Jester Eld, descendant of all the first fair and wise counsellor that he was. As he brought an end to the wars between the clans, so has Eld encouraged us all to prevent pulling asunder what has so carefully been woven together through decades of well-earned trust. Much to Eld's surprise, not a single goblet was kept from touching a lip as the king drank deeply from his. Adding further to his sense of relief was the fact that two of the barons, Soloto and Taurus, were even nodding in agreement with the king's kind words. Of the feelings of the other three barons, Eld was far less sure, although he could sense in their differing degrees of negative emotion an underlying tension at work in the hall that belied any attempt at merriment or jobality the rest of the evening would be far more unpleasant than it had been thus far. The disagreement was nothing new. There had always been grumbling by the barons and the lesser nobles, especially at the time of the yearly trade conferences. But this year felt different. There was a rudeness and an intolerance radiating from the noble class that Elf had either never noticed, or which had steadily increased on pace with the barons' profits and the length of their belts to a level that no longer could be ignored. Trusting his developed powers of observation above all else, he was strongly inclined toward the latter. It was this very rudeness that had made the evening so difficult for Held, even before the outspoken barons had put him on the spot and forced him to speak his mind before he was ready to do so. The barked commands and crude jokes aimed at the servant class had brought into sharp relief just how great the disparity had become between those few who held power and wealth and the many, many more who did not. It was a realization that made Elf feel more than a little helpless, and in truth embarrassed, for he too had profited from his lineage. Now although a jester did not hold rights to land, or positions of real power outside the castle walls, he and those like him had managed to distance themselves from the class of acrobats and the belly and motley performers that were referred to, with no small disdain, as clowns. He had studied with the castle tutors and court historians almost to the same extent as the king, reading the great authors and studying problems of government and diplomacy that those in the lower classes could not even begin to understand. He had studied music, art, horsemanship. His life had been lived in the sure arms of education and high culture. And yet he felt himself no better at this moment than the clowns. What are you thinking, Jester? Baron Taurus, the oldest of the five barons, and not surprisingly the most reasonable, was staring intently at El from over the rim of his goblet. You look as though you've just been the recipient of a disturbing revelation. I have, El replied, though I feel somewhat better for it. Care to elaborate? I've just been noticing the quality of dress and jeweled adornment on the other barons and their families, and the way they have chosen to treat those who serve us here today. They have nothing at all to complain about, and yet that's all I've heard from them. They don't realize how fortunate they are to have been born into the noble class, and yet you can hardly blame them. They and their fathers have risen to power in a time when most of the hard work and hopefully the violence are behind us. My father, my father filled our ears with stories of the unity wars, Elf, whether we wanted to hear them or not. Hundreds of years of petty chieftains fighting amongst themselves and with the elves nearly ruined the centerland and made all of us slaves. These men have grown soft and greedy in the coddling arms of comfort and peace. Ironic, isn't it? Um, perhaps more so than you think, I replied. Though you are a man wise beyond your years, <laughs> that's almost an impossibility, Torres said. And though you honor me with your flattery, I know that I am an old fool who is himself too comfortable to speak out against the wishes of my fellows. I tell you, Eld, if I had a son, I would turn the whole of my lands and title over to him and retire to my cabin in the bars. We're supposed to serve the less fortunate, and here they are, serving us." He motioned to a serving girl hovering nervously over Eld's shoulder. "'What is it, Marie?' Eld asked impatiently, curious as he was to hear more of Torres' words. Oh, "'Oh, yes, well, sir, pardon me, Master but uh, your cup, is not full.' Elk flinched slightly, and several drops of wine splashed his hand as the serving girl hurriedly filled his cup. Oh, "'Pardon me again, sir,' the girl said, stooping to wipe his hand. Oh, it, "'It's fine, it's fine,' he said, lifting his napkin and giving the girl a reassuring look. "'I'm sure you have plenty else to do.' "'But I should say she does,' Phil Ruth replied with a sneer. "'I have finished my fruit and cheese, and I am waiting most impatiently for the main course.' Elb concentrated on maintaining his supportive look for Marie, who appeared as though she were physically wounded by the callous baron's words. Besides, it kept him from saying something to the baron he might later regret. "'Do not fret,' Baron Philbert, the cook replied, approaching the table and bowing low before the round and red-faced man. "'The main course has arrived!' "'Arrived indeed,' El thought, watching a procession of no less than fifteen serving girls, including the king's own daughter, struggling beneath the weight of identical covered platters, stationing themselves around the six long open tables arranged in a rectangle in the center of the hall. Well, don't just stand there, Philter Croth, several fleshy chunks of peach falling from his mouth. Uncover those platters and be on your way! I'm about to pass out from a lack of substance! What happened next would forever live on in the annals of the castle. Perhaps not in the formal histories, but in the stories told by the castle servants, passed the time near winter fires. <clears throat> uh, "'Your Majesty, an honored guest,' Cook said nervously. "'On behalf of the kitchen staff, I offer for your enjoyment the evening's delights.' "'Blah, blah, blah!' Philbert bellowed, bringing a smattering of agreements and applause from those around him. "'Give me that platter and move out of the way!' he said, pushing aside a timid serving girl. Oh, "'My dear,' he said, turning to his wife, as he lifted the cover. You shall be the first to sample the cook's fine fare. Her reply, in the form of a blood-chilling scream, stopped the room cold. As his eyes fell upon the half-explosed platter, L saw why. Where there should have been a roast, or a game bird, or other steaming and carefully garnished delicacy, there was instead a rotted animal's head gazing out at the guests. The dead sockets of its eye holes, making silent and sobering mockery of the evening's proceedings. A swelling chorus of screams, yells, and vicious outbursts of revulsion and disgust quickly broke the silence as platters were uncovered around the hall. Held watched with helpless frustration as the chaos fell to a deafening, cacophonous pitch as a swell of guests and the servants who were avoiding them moved toward the walls and away from the rotting heads it wasn't us, Cook protested, grabbing his wife in a burly arm and his daughter in the other. It was chicken made us do it, chicken and rabbit as I live and as I breathe. Elf felt his fists, clenching in anger, despite his best efforts to will them otherwise. This had his thirteen-year-old son's name written all over it. All had found trouble. Again scanning the room for a glimpse of his child, who no doubt was hiding in the shadow somewhere having a very good laugh. El felt the considerable weight of a fellow diner sag against him as she fainted and slipped to the floor. Glancing down at the evening gown bulk, he recognized Baron Pilgrim's wife, certainly the worst of all possible scenarios. "'Oh, God!' he shouted over the growing din of screams and pleas for calm. Um, "'Help this woman, for all that's good!' El the King Dylan called from the head of the table. Who would do such an ugly, disruptive thing? I'm not quite sure, your highness, he said. But give me a half an hour, and I'm sure I'll find out. Very well, then, the third ruler of Glitter, I answered. Do what you must. I will try to calm things here. So, Elf goes, and he finds his son in their personal chambers, and uh, they have a conversation about what's taking place.
0: Joy Medea's book Jester Night can be found through various online retailers, one of which, Book Ben of New Jersey, we have linked at our podcast homepage, wvwritersorg slash podcast.html. There you'll also find links to a YouTube video trailer for the book, as well as to Joy's new Mystic Theater Company website. Well that wraps up the first of what we hope will be many more podcasts featuring live readings. If you have a reading you'd like to share with us for the podcast, we'd love to hear it. We do ask that in order to fit within the time constraints of this podcast, the readings should be no longer than 17 minutes. We're certainly not limiting ourselves to prose readings either, as we'd love poetry readings and can take all links of those as well. So long, of course, as they aren't epic poems of a duration longer than 17 minutes. Shorter poems could probably be used as part of a normal podcast episode, or we might even put together a poetry-only show featuring several poets at once. So, if you have a recording, please contact me for details on how you can get it into my clutches. If you already have it in MP3 format, that's great, but I can take hard copies as well. In fact, the Mr. Herman Studios can pretty much digitize anything from cassette to CD to reel to reel tape. My address that you can send those to is in the most recent West Virginia Writers newsletter, but you can also drop me a line at wvwpodcast at gmail.com and I'll send it on in. On our next episode, we'll be speaking with West Virginia storyteller Susanna Granny Sue Holstein. She has a long history with West Virginia Writers as well as with the West Virginia Storytellers Guild and the National Storytellers Network. She has quite a number of books and recordings to her own credit, and no doubt she'll have a story or two to share with us. So please do join us on August 28th for the next West Virginia Writers Podcast. This week's podcast was brought to you by West Virginia Writers' latest collection of material that has won our annual writing contest entitled Seeking the Swan. This collection features fiction, essays, poetry, plays, children's books, and more by West Virginia literary figures such as Laura Tracy Bentley, Fran Simone, Cheryl Denise, John Mugas, Robert Flanagan, Belinda Anderson, Lynn Widmeyer, and many more. Seeking the Swan is available at our website for $16 plus shipping. It can also be found at fine bookstores around the state, such as Taylor Books in Charleston, The Open Book in Lewisburg, Tamarack in Beckley, among others. It makes a great Labor Day present, and studies have shown that Seeking the Swan increases one's appreciation for Appalachian writing and prevents deer from eating your begonias. Book may not prevent deer from eating your begonias. Do yourself a favor and pick up a copy of one for a loved one today. Our opening voiceover was provided by Marcus Vowell. If you have comments or suggestions about the podcast, we can be reached by email at wwwpodcast.gmail.com. at gmail.com. Our show's theme music is used with permission by its composer, Pops Walker, whose albums can be found at popswalker.com. This podcast has been produced by Mr. Herman's Production Company Limited and was recorded atop a hill in Mercer County.